Our scripture today is John 17, 20 through 26. In your pew Bibles, that's page 903. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Are you guys aware of this viral uh, phenomenon going across social media right now? How often do you think about the Roman Empire? If you've scrolled through your social media feed, Recently, you might have seen this question, and it's almost always posed from wives to their husbands over and over again. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? How stupid is that? But it's gone viral, and the trend is simple. Uh, ask a man in your life how often he thinks about this ancient civilization, and in many cases, he will say, often, often. Well, as, as Trinity journeys into a new normal and you think about what life will look like after the Hearst family travels on from here, I want you to know that I have not been thinking about, I haven't been thinking about the Roman Empire, Empire at all. I have been thinking day and night about what I want to leave you with in these last three Sundays. It has nothing to do with the Roman Empire and it has everything to do with Jesus' empire. So over these next three weeks, I'm going to leave you with three things that I think are critical for you to cling to, whether it's me up here week after week after week or back in that office Monday to Friday or not. So I want us to think of these three weeks like a three-legged stool. And we need each of them to be the kind of church Jesus wants us to be and wants you to be. They are critical. And so here's what we're going to cover over the three weeks. I want to encourage you to preserve Trinity's unity at all costs, treasure Sunday gatherings, and cling to Jesus' word. This week, we're going to touch on that first leg of the stool, how Jesus' people ought to be known for stirring up unity within the church. So during this pivotal moment for our church, I want to help you see and believe that you, as an individual Christian, have a very critical role yourself into maintaining a stabilizing unity here at Trinity Community Church. And beyond it being your role, I want you to see that no matter who you are, you can be an explicit answer to Jesus' prayer. That's a kind of mind-blowing thought. I, Josh Hurst, can be an answer to Jesus' prayer a couple of thousand years ago, and the same is true for you. So here's today's big idea, hopefully a portable idea you can take home with you uh, and think back on and meditate on. Jesus prayed that you would pursue compelling unity. 
And I'm not talking like a plural you there. I'm talking about a singular you, that you as an individual would, individual would pursue compelling unity. Unity is the central theme of the passage here in John 17. But it's critical that we have a really clear idea of the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for amongst us. Else it's really easy for us to get off track and to unify around something that Jesus doesn't even care about. Okay? Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say about this. He says, Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. That's a lot of words there. I'm going to try to help us unpack that a little bit. What does he mean? He means that some of us bring our own idea of what a church community should look like to the table. And when we import our own idea of what it should look like and we bring that to the table, we threaten the unity of the church, even though we might think that we're contributing to the unity. He wants us to be really clear that we're not bringing our own ideas into this. So for a few moments here, let's set aside the dreams that we have for what a compelling church community should look like or what church leadership should look like or membership or whatever. Let's set those aside and see what Jesus has to say about a compelling church unity, and how we as individuals can actually be the answer to Jesus' prayer. So first off here, I want to encourage you in the coming weeks and years and decades, keep the foundation of your unity, the gospel. Keep the foundation of your unity, the gospel. Anytime I'm getting ready to head out of town on a trip for something without my family, I'll sit down with them and I'll Tell them that I love them and that I'm going to miss them and I can't wait to see them when I get back. And often I'm praying over them and especially for mommy in my absence, right, that she'll keep her sanity. Well, that's what's happening with Jesus here in John 17. We are 12 hours away from the cross when Jesus prays this prayer. And Jesus knows it's, it's time to get the family together and it's time to pray about what's going to happen next. Don't you just so wish that you could drop into a time machine and hide out somewhere behind a tree or a rock and just hear what anchored Jesus' prayers, what they sounded like, what they felt like, maybe even like what they looked like, what his posture was, his tone of voice as he's talking to his father. Well, listening to what Jesus prays for helps us understand what's most important to Jesus and then what should be most important to us in our own prayers and pursuits. So let's hide out behind the tree of John 17 this morning and see what Jesus has to say in his prayer here. John 17 has three main sections documenting Jesus' prayer. In verses 20 to 26, we see what burdens Jesus has for us, for his future disciples. And he specifically prayed for his future disciples to have unity, to experience unity. We're going to focus most of our time on verses 20 to 26 today. But before we get there, I do want to note that I think that it's interesting where Jesus starts here, Jesus acknowledges that he's basically already finished with what he came to do. Look, look all the way up there in verse 4. He prays basically, I've already accomplished the work that you gave me to do, Father. I've already almost finished it. Now, in what sense is Jesus' work finished at this point in time? Like before the cross, before the resurrection, right? 
Well, I think first that he means mostly finished, not completely finished. But I think we do see here that reducing Jesus' work to only his cross work is to way undervalue everything that Jesus did before the cross. And we should not undervalue his life. In other words, according to this, we can't answer the question, what has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you? We can't answer that question with a typical, oh, he died on the cross to pay for my sins. You're not wrong, obviously. That's the amazing nub of the gospel. It's so true. But that answer still falls short. According to Jesus, his work was nearly complete even before the cross. So I think what we should glean from this is that at the very least, Jesus' earthly saving work began began in Bethlehem and not on Calvary. His earthly saving work began in Bethlehem where he was born and not on Calvary where he died. Here's what I mean. We don't just need our sins paid for by his blood. We need God to pronounce us fully righteous. That one is righteous. That one gets access to me because he's fully righteous and holy. That is the act of justification. God justifies us based on the righteousness of someone else. We are made righteous when we are declared by God to be in perfect harmony with the demands of his law. You know, Romans 3 says we have fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of God's glory. And what justification does is raise us up to God's glory by Jesus' righteousness being given to us by the Father. That's legal language, right? It's like almost like courtroom language, declared righteous. And so that means from God's perspective, when we are justified, we're not only sinless, but also perfectly righteous. In justification, God literally clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus. He declares us to be perfectly righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. We love, rightly so, to rush to the cross. We sing about it every Sunday. We circle around and around it. It is the centerpiece of our faith. But we should not so easily rush over the life of Jesus. He lived perfectly so that his righteous account could be applied to our unrighteous account. You were in debt, eternal debt, but he didn't just pay off your debt at the cross. He credited your account with his righteousness because of the life he lived before the cross. Now you hold all the advantages, all the advantages of being a son or a daughter of God, just like Jesus was the son of the Father. This means something incredible. God would no more turn you away than he would turn Jesus away. That's how confident you can be when you go before the Father. Some of us forget the radical, amazing privilege it is to come before the Father, and that we'll spend eternity before the Father. Let us not forget that was hard-earned by Jesus in his perfect life. How does this affect our unity, though? It's like a nice, encouraging piece of doctrine. It's an encouraging teaching, but how does it affect unity? Well, do you see how it like absolutely flattens the, the playing field for all of us? You have all the advantages of being a son or a daughter. Yes, praise God. But guess what? All the other people in this room do too. They are also sons and daughters of the king. So that one that you have a beef with, that pastor that you're annoyed at, the person whose Facebook post irritates you, what gives you the right to rip them to shreds with your tongue or with your keyboard or to someone else behind their back. That's God's kid you're talking to or talking about. They're a son or a daughter of the king. They're fully righteous, just like you. Not because of what they did. It's not because of what you do. It's because of what Jesus' 
his account being applied to you. So be careful how you weaponize your words against God's kids. If you have concerns with someone, and you inevitably will, right, with everyone in this room that you get to know even slightly, there's going to be something that comes up. Go to that person if need be. Don't come to me or go to the other pastors. Don't speak with it about it to your friends or to your community group. Don't try to solve the problem with other people. If the people you're talking to about your problem aren't a part of the solution, it would be disunifying for you to proceed. And our job here as a church is to work hard to preserve the unity of this church because it's a reflection of what God has called us to do in the relationship between the Father and the Son and their perfect unity. We'll get to that in a second. You never know how accepting someone might be of your confrontation or your encouragement or your constructive criticism or whatever. You never know. So just go to them and see if the Lord might use you to stir up unity with that person and they with you. You know, Jesus prayed for moments like we're experiencing in our church right now. We're like, Satan is looking for a way in. All right? Let's, uh, let's not let him win. Like those, uh, those trendy t-shirts, we link arm in arm and we say, not today, Satan. All right? We're going to preserve unity. We're going to work hard at this. Jesus prays that we would be unified around our equal status as sons and daughters of the king. And if we are unified around that, if we are unified around the fact that we are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, we'll treat each other like that. And in this way, we preserve our unity. But he's also praying that you'll, number two here, make the gravitational pull of your unity the word. Make the gravitational pull of your unity over the next weeks and months and decades the word of God. Jesus puts boundaries on our unity right here. Do you see it there in verse 20? He's just finished praying for his disciples in the first section of John 17. And now he says, I'm not only praying for the disciples. I'm also praying for the future church, those who will believe, those who have not yet believed but will believe. That's us. Jesus, pray for us. I think it's so cool that Josh Hurst showed up on Jesus' prayer list a couple thousand years ago. You too. It's an amazing, glorious privilege. But what is Jesus saying here in verse 20 that we ought to believe in? These are the boundaries of our unity right here. He means that we are to believe in the truth handed down from the disciples and the apostles who spent time with Jesus and who were inspired by the Spirit to pen the words that you see in that book on your lap or on your phone screen today. This book is the source of our unity, and it is also the boundaries, represents the boundaries of our unity. Jesus is saying that whatever ideas we have about unity should find their source and boundaries in the teaching of the word. More than your love for your country, more than your love for your political cause, more than your love for your team, more than your love for whatever your pet thing is, you should find this book to be the gravitational pull of your universe and of this church's spiritual life. The word of God shows us what to find unity in, who to find unity with, and where and how to pursue that unity. What you must fight for is to ensure that your unity is around this book and its core doctrines, particularly the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are so many causes that are clamoring for our attention right now, aren't there? Sexual causes, racial causes, political causes. Who are you going to side with? What is the gravitational pull in your life? Like a shark circles its prey. Circle this book, Trinity. 
like the earth rotates around the sun, orient everything you do to this book, the authoritative word of God. This is how you will sustain unity, gospel unity. Listen, it may feel like we're on the losing side right now, and you may be tempted to find other sources of gravitational pulls that make you feel safer or more comfortable. I get that the feeling right now in America and beyond is that we are on the losing side as Christians. It can be frustrating and disheartening. The media and sometimes even the government, both parties, all parties are cramming down all kinds of nonsense at alarming rates. But don't be shaken, Christian. Things are not as they seem. The undertow of this text is like super victorious. Jesus knows he's going to win in this prayer. He knows he's going to win in the end. He is so confident. If you didn't know any better, you might think he was a little bit overconfident to make some of the assumptions that he makes in this text. Look at verse 20. He says, there are those who will believe. Jesus' godly swagger here is awesome, I think. We are the those that Jesus was praying for, the future church. He's confident that there will be a future church because he knows right then and there that he is going to suffer violently in like 12 hours. But then in like three days and 12 hours, he knows he's going to get up victoriously out of that grave. He knows and he's flexing his cosmic power right here in this prayer. And this should fuel great confidence for you as a church. It's like that old hymn, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. The unity we all long for when heaven and earth become one. For some of us, though, our social feeds hold greater sway over us than this book. For some of us, CNN, for some of us, Fox or Trump or Biden or whatever in between. As the world continues to drift further and further from this book, don't be surprised that we're being pulled apart, pulled apart at the seams. But don't be doubtful either. They aren't the center of gravity for you. This book is. God's word is the sun of our universe. And this is the gravitational pull of your unity at this church. Don't get that twisted with anything else. Keep the main thing the main thing. If this book is the gravitational center, it means you can and should find a compelling unity with those you disagree with on a variety of issues. This means that you can trust the Lord with this upcoming transition. As long as the word is the center of Trinity's universe, you're going to be fine. You can trust Jesus, Trinity. Trust him as the pastoral search committee endeavors to find God's next man for this role. You can trust the Lord. You don't need to question them at every turn because you can trust the Lord. They're godly men and women who are invested in this church and its welfare. But don't sink your trust in them or even in your ability to be able to steer them with texts or emails or phone calls. You can trust the Lord. Trust Jesus. He loves Trinity more than all of us combined. And he was praying for us a couple thousand years ago. And he continues to plead before the Father on our behalf. Trust Jesus. Number three, focus on the model for your unity, Father and Son. Focus on the model, Father and Son. Glance back down at verse 21 there. Jesus prays, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Just as. Our unity with one another should be just as the unity of the Father with the Son. Think on that. That's a wild unity. Perfect unity. The word for just as is actually just one word in the Greek. It carries with it the idea of degree. So like think to the degree that. So let's just reread that phrase from the text there in verse 21 and personalize it a little bit. Uh, Pray it into your heart. Here's what it would look like or sound like. Or you can read it. Father, give Trinity Community Church unity to the same degree that you and Jesus enjoy unity. Wow, it's a staggering prayer. And it can be the reality of our experience as a church. He says it again in verse 22. He prays that they may be one even as we are one. Our unity as a church is so vital because Trinity's unity reflects upon the Father's unity with the Son. Let me say that again. Our unity as a church is vital because it is supposed to reflect the perfect unity of Father and Son. If we're unified, we're saying something true about the unity between the Father and the Son. But if we are disunified and we're cutting each other down, or if we're steering away from the truth of this book, then we're saying something that is false about Father and Son. Of course, unity is not the same thing as uniformity. We will differ on some things. That is natural and healthy. Express those things with grace, like the other person is a son or a daughter of the king just like you, made righteous just like you, needy and needed just like you. The church of Jesus is a diverse church. I don't just mean like racially, though, though it is. We certainly desire that. But it boasts, we boast a million different opinions on a million different things in this space. But our diversity must not lead to the defeat of unity among us. You may have opinions about how someone should think and act politically. You might hold a cause dear that another saint here does not. You may wish the church functioned differently or cared for you more holistically. What is important is that we not substitute our pet cause or our ideal for the word being the center of our universe. And how do we do that? How do we avoid making those things the center rather than this thing the center? Here's a quote that is attributed to Augustine uh, that I found helpful. He says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In all things, charity. So Trinity, I urge you, on the basis of Romans 15, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you in order to Bring praise to God. Accept one another as God has accepted you. Jesus prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. He prayed that old and young, black and white, mature and immature in this room would build community so intimate that it reflects the unified relationship of the God of the universe, Father and Son. I probably don't even have to tell you that this is going to take a miracle, right? You know, as well as I do, that this kind of compelling unity is impossible. But that's why this is a prayer. It's going to take a power that you don't have within you. But if you're going to share intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son, it's going to take time, effort, patience. It's probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable at times as you pursue this, but it is so worth it because it shows a watching world and each other the glory of God, his perfect unity. 
It might mean getting up a little bit earlier than you're comfortable with and early morning coffee with someone just to encourage them, not to like correct them, just bless them, pray over them, and go on with your day. It may mean inviting new faces into your home. It may mean taking interest in someone who has taken no interest in you. It might mean biting your tongue when you feel like complaining. The foundation of our unity is the gospel. The gravitational pull of our unity is this book. The model for our uh, unity in our relationships is the Father and the Son. And then fourth here, fuel your unity with the love of God. Fuel your unity with the love of God. In verse 23, Jesus prays that the world may know that you, Father, sent me and love them even as you love me. How much does the Father love the Son? He loves his Son so much that he wants to see multitudes of little Christs, Christians. That's what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. He wants to see a multitude of little Christs running around the world, making the name of Jesus famous. The Father loves his Son so much that he tells us, go be like him so that everyone in the world knows what he is like. Grandparents, you know exactly what this is like, don't you? You are more than ready to show any willing or any unwilling person uh, yeah, the, those can't miss, uh, goodness, can't miss pictures of your grandkids, right? You love to show off your grandkids. Maybe you don't even care if the other person is interested in looking. You're still going to show them. You're proud of them. You want to show them off. They're the most beautiful kids in the world, even more beautiful than your kids probably, right? Same way with God the Father. He is proud of his son, and he wants to show the world a picture of his son through us. It's a cool job that we have. The father loves the son, but he doesn't only love the son. Look at verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. God loves you like he loves his son. What? (laughs) How can that be? I mean, at one level, it makes sense that the father loves the son, right? What's the virtue in that? We all love our kids. Doesn't seem like anything special. So what you might expect is like a hierarchy to come out in this prayer. Father, I know that you love me more than them, but you still love them. You might expect Jesus to say something like that. But that's not what he says. He says that God loves us like he loves Jesus. We should pause here and just drink that in for a sec. This is astounding. Jesus said that the love of his Father for him is the same love that the Father has for us. That is like rocket fuel for unity right there, all right? Friends, you are loved. You have been adopted into a family that you have no business being in. And if you're not sure whether or not you're a part of God's family this morning, please track me down afterwards. It would be the biggest joy and privilege to speak with you about that. Jesus, through his life and death, has made a way for us to get into the family of God, and it is beautiful. But for those of us who have placed our trust in the finished work of Jesus, from Bethlehem to Calvary and beyond, we get rights and privileges and a future and a father that we don't deserve, but we have access to all of it because we are loved. The love of God fuel your unity with one another. We are loved with a staggering, mind-blowing, very bloody, costly love. Not a love that overlooks your brokenness, and your flaws, and your sins, but a love that has reckoned with it and conquered it at the cross. You may feel rejected this morning. 
You may feel like an outsider, but in Christ, you're loved. Sit in that. Having been shown this unmerited love, should we not then share this love with one another? In all things, charity. Look at the progression there from verse 23 to 26. Verse 23 says that we are loved with the same love as that between the Father and the Son. But then look at 26. The love with which you have loved me, I pray that this love may be in them. Jesus prays that the staggering love between the Father and the Son would also be between me and you, and you and you, and all of us. Again, this is like flattening and humbling to all of us in here, I think. The person down the row from you right now, they are loved in this way by the Father. Treat them that way. I'm not saying don't say hard things. I'm saying treat them with all the respect and honor as a son or daughter of God himself. No matter their background, no matter their race, no matter their age, no matter their gifts, no matter their looks, no matter. We have been loved and bought and adopted by the Father. And take a look around. For all those in Christ in here, they have too. So what are we doing picking fights with the one that Jesus has set his love on? How could we dare stir up disunity within a body that Jesus prayed would show the world the intimate relationship between father and son? How dare you speak negatively of a brother or sister without going to them first? Because our center is the doctrine of this book and really the gospel of this book, we can expect unlikely reconciliation between unlikely parties. That's the beautiful thing about the humbling gospel of Jesus. The gospel obliterates barriers and obligates us to a joyful life of diverse, unified community. So pursue it and preserve it. Oh, may the aroma of Trinity Community Church be that of the compelling love of the Father and the Son. This church's unity is going to live and die, not on this hour and a half on Sunday mornings. This church's unity is going to live and die in your one-on-one convos with one another. And over and over again, you ask yourself, is what I am discussing with this person reflective of the love that God has shown to Jesus and to me? And is the gravitational pull of this conversation Christ-centric or complaint-centric? Ray Ortland takes this concept kind of like out of the theoretical and into the really practical. How do we demonstrate a really compelling unity? He says, invite someone unlike you over for dinner. Set before them the best meal that you can provide. Treat them like the royalty God says they are and enjoy that blessed evening to the max. Barriers broken, a friend gained. May this be the story of Trinity Community Church. Just simple community, unified community, caring for one another, pushing one another towards Jesus offering forgiveness when it's needed, asking for forgiveness when it's necessary. One final aspect of our unity, and I'll be done. Number five, aim your unity at the mission of God. Aim your unity at the mission of God. Jesus prays and asks God in verse 23 again, so much packed into verse 23. He prays that they may become perfectly one so that, there's that so that word there, right? Here's the purpose. Why are we unified? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So that, so that, so that, so that, tips us off to what this is all even for in the first place. What's the point of all this for Jesus? 
It's the mission of persuading every single person that Jesus is totally a reality and totally the loving Savior of the world, without which we will not get to God. This is essentially our vision statement. It is our desire that every man, woman, and child in Abington have an encounter with Jesus that cannot be ignored. I wonder if we have a unity here that just can't be ignored by the world. Our unity adds strength and credibility to the message of Jesus. That's why it's so important that we pursue it and preserve it. My parents just retired to Tampa Bay, like right on Tampa Bay. Uh, And every once in a while, they'll send me a picture like this from the balcony of their condo. I'm pretty sure it's not because they love me. Uh, They want to rub it in what their life looks like right now. Um, and their life is beautiful and, and well-deserved. When, when they send pictures like this to me, uh, they're trying to strike at something in my core, like deep down in my heart. They want to make me want to be where they are. They want to make me want to be with them. Those, that picture isn't a real place. It's just a picture of a real place. But those pictures have a purpose. They want me to say, man, I want to go there right now. And they want me to say, and bring the grandkids with you, right? Has nothing to do with me. But the same is true for us. Obviously, we are neither the actual son, nor are we the actual father. But we should be a picture of them. A very precise picture of what their love looks like. And our lives, our unity, should make the outside world say, man, I want to go there now. I want to experience, whatever that is, I want to experience it. Because it is otherworldly beautiful. Our unity as Jesus Church has a very focused aim. All throughout this short passage, the aim of our unity is to present a compelling picture of God to the world. In verse 23 again, Jesus prays for Trinity Community Church's unity so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That is what our unity is pointed at. And as they observe this unity in us, there should be something so supernatural about it that people immediately recognize a reflection of something much grander or more wonderful than anything else that they've ever experienced. God uses our oneness to help the world know that Jesus is the legit Messiah of the world. We live in this way not because any one of us is super attractive or desirable uh, to be one with. Uh, We live in this way because we have friends we have family, we have coworkers that are dying without Jesus, and they desperately need Jesus. And Jesus says that if you are one, if we are one, the world will be compelled to believe in Jesus. So let us be one to compel them to our beautiful Savior. So practically, boots on the ground, as we wrap here, how can our lives demonstrate this sort of unity? I think in order for the world to know Jesus and know that he loves them, and our love, for each other, our love for each other needs to be compelling, number one, and comprehensive. Compelling and comprehensive. Our love for one another, compelling and comprehensive. It cannot be a secret, silent unity. There is no such thing as mindless, actionless unity. Our love for each other is what the church was always supposed to be known for. Trinity is not supposed to be known for great speakers or great facilities or amazing music. All those things are great. And we love and appreciate them. But the church is supposed to be known to the world by our oneness and love for each other. Jesus doesn't know anything about a unity that is quiet 
and hands off. Our oneness must be obvious to be effective and to be compelling. So not just compelling, but comprehensive. What this means is that this cannot just be a Sunday-only gig for y'all, for us. If a watching world is going to see our oneness, it's probably not going to happen inside these four walls because rarely are they going to darken our doors. So if you wonder, so I wonder, are you ready to reject Sunday-only Christianity and embrace 24-7, 365 community? Does the Father only show love to the Son on Sundays? No, it is an ever-present, all-enveloping, comprehensive kind of love. And so ought ours to be for one another. It means your dinner table is going to be a little bit fuller. Your wallet might be a little bit lighter. Your calendar might be a little more crowded. You're going to make meals for folks. You're going to give of yourself. It means your social media posts count too and the tone and the words that you use. All of these should be done in service to this great unity project that Jesus is calling us to. And it will bring stability to this church as we pursue unity in Jesus. Three concluding uh, caveats or thoughts here. I just want to be clear that it is unity, not uniformity, that we're after here. You join this community not for yourself, not for self-expression, not for a platform, not to gain credence in any way from this small subset of, a commu- of humanity. You join to lose your identity completely in a cause that is much bigger than any one of us, to find an altogether better, more glorious identity through the oneness of community. But this, I, I don't say this to make you think that you have to be stripped of your gifts, or of your personality, or of your identity, or of your individuality, but, but to find that your unique gifts are meant to be a unique thread in our tapestry of oneness. So use your gift, whatever it is, to fall in and fold in to the unified community here. It's unity, but not, not uniformity. Second, you'll do this imperfectly, not perfectly. I'm not telling you anything new today. We're all going to fall short at this. Every person on your pew and all the pews before you and behind you. Let's just acknowledge that now. Be aware of that. Get that all out on the table so when it comes time to forgive or be forgiven, it's just normal. It's the normal rhythm of the Christian life. From the greatest to the least of us, we aren't Jesus. We are not always going to exhibit compelling unity. Uh, At some point, we're going to disrupt unity instead of promote it or preserve it. But we do have a father who, on account of a righteous life and death of Jesus, has counted us righteous and free. That will not be held against us in the end, nor will it be held against anyone else who is in Christ. If we have been forgiven, surely we can forgive one another. You can bet that you're going to have to ask and grant forgiveness consistently at Trinity. Let's make it a normal part of our cadence. Finally, unity is actional, not theoretical. Unity is actional, not theoretical. Today's text is not something that you can just like give assent to and shake your head at. It's not something that you can just agree with. You should agree with it. It's what God says. But it's something that you have to act on. Now, right now, think of one way that you can begin to pursue unity with someone in this faith community this coming week. Perhaps it's by confessing the sin of stirring up disunity to a friend. Perhaps it's asking someone to coffee. And in my own life, when I've had uh, conflict with people, Uh, I found that demonizing someone is easy when I'm apart from them, but when we are together face-to-face, it's a lot harder and a lot easier to extend and receive grace. Take courage and take that step to make that connection. 
I read a stat recently that we swipe our smartphones on an average of 2,700 times a day. What if we started using a quarter or a third or even half of those swipes to instead tap out encouraging emails or text messages to the other members in our church? That's how we actively stir up unity in our church. Act on Jesus' prayer. Don't just agree with it. Imagine what God can do with a group of people who are absolutely committed to oneness. You might find a man in his 70s down on a knee interacting with a seven-year-old child. He's not too busy for that kid. He has next to nothing in common with that child, but because he's part of the unifying body, a unified body, it's no matter, he can serve that child's parents by investing into that child. Or you might find yourself in someone else's driveway from this body, helping them with a car repair or, or something when their neighbor pops by and introduces himself or herself, and you'll have the opportunity in that moment to acknowledge that you're helping them there because you're a part of the same church family, faith community. Or maybe we'll begin to see pockets of people scattered throughout this room on, at our Sunday gatherings and praying with each other, praying over one another because we know each other not just on Sundays, but we know each other on the everyday, and we're sort of catching up on what happened last Wednesday or Thursday because we care for one another and want to stir up unity with one another. I'm praying so hard that the Father will answer the prayer of his Son for Trinity Community Church. That as you submit to his ideas of oneness in this small body of believers, that you would have a compelling community. That's what Jesus prayed for. Will you be a part of the Father's answer to his Son's prayer? I hope so. I pray so. We are going to close in prayer now. Trevor's going to come and pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you prayed for our unity all those thousands of years ago. That is such a comfort to us, such a blessing, and um, such a challenge. We pray with you for the unity of Trinity. We pray that you would help us to be united with each other just as you are united uh, with the Father. We pray that our unity would be in the right things. Help us to stay focused on the gospel and the truth and not let uh, other uh, distractions draw us away from where we should be. Uh, we pray that in all things we would have love for each other. Help us to remember that you accepted us just as we are, and I pray that you would help us to accept uh, the other members of our family here um, as they are too. Um, and we just pray for this unity, not for our good, but for your glory. We pray that you would use us to proclaim your name and to build your kingdom around the world.